0: What do you expect when you're expecting a new showrunner? We've gone back over the Doctor Who and Torchwood episodes written by Chris Chibnall. Everything from gaseous aliens and cyberwomen to dinosaurs on spaceships and mysterious cubes. Are there any clues to the future of Doctor Who when he takes over? For August 8th, it's This Week in Time Travel. Hello, everybody. We are back from vacation. We were absolutely fried and the weather was just too good. But we are back now for you all.
1: And in in our defense, uh, the previous episode was about five hours long. Probably. Tom and Rachel are with us. And uh, this will be our second episode in a row when the entire team is here.
2: Yay. (laughs) Hello.
1: We ordinarily start off uh, the podcast with the news from the last week in Doctor Who, but there hasn't been much of anything. Uh, The only thing that I sort of noticed that I took a a, a fair bit of interest in, it was just a little bit of news from Big Finish, uh, providing a little detail to their already announced uh, season five of Torchwood, the official continuation of the show. So uh, head writer James Goss uh, talks a lot about stuff that's coming up and uh, mentions a couple of previous big finishes that would be helpful uh, if you really want to be a completist and to f- prepare yourself for the continuation of Torchwood. And uh, Link will be in the show notes to the interview with James Goss in the future of Torchwood. But that seems to make a perfect segue into the uh, subject of today's uh, This Week in Time Travel, which is the study of Chipnology and his <laughs> history with, uh, with both Torchwood and Doctor Who.
0: Yep, so the full team has gone back and watched just about every episode that Chibnall has written for Torchwood and Doctor Who. Um, So I think about half of us focused uh, mostly on Torchwood, half of us focused uh, primarily on Doctor Who. That's roughly how the breakdown goes, but people just sort of went wherever they wanted to go with this. Uh, So to give you a quick overview, he wrote four episodes of Torchwood Series 1, including the finale, um, and he wrote four episodes of Torchwood Season 2, including the opener and the finale for Doctor Who. He wrote forty-two during season three, The Hungry Earth and Cold Blood for season five, um, the Pond Life mini episodes before season seven, and Dinosaurs on a Spaceship and the Power of Three for series seven. Uh, so, how do we all feel after watching that much Chibnall? Uh, exhausted, excited, a little. Uh,
2: I think I might need some. I, I I think I need a break. I need a holiday. It's really—I I don't know. It, it, it's very good. I mean, it, there's like, there's some very interesting uh, there's some very interesting things which happen in a lot of the Doctor Who episodes that you notice if you watch them back to back. So I'm interested in hearing if you guys are picking up um, similar things from the Torchwood because I've got to be honest, I've never really watched Torchwood. I, I think I saw one or two oh. of them. But yeah, exactly. I think I saw one or two of them and thought I've got other stuff to do. So, I, <laughs> I, so, so, so yeah. In, in the work in is in before I start. Was there anything in the torchwood that was consistent across all the episodes that you watched? I mean, were there things that kept coming up? I mean, there's one big obvious one that I found in the Doctor Who, but I'm, yeah, I'm interested to hear what you guys found.
3: I would say the first thing I noticed is that he has a very wicked sense of humor. Oh, yeah. And it, and it goes throughout, and I think also the Doctor Who episodes, that he's very good at doing that switch from light humour to dark humour to deadly serious and mm. and kind of toggling between those modes very well. Okay. Nice. Nice. The,
1: okay. One of the things that I noticed from uh, from the uh, Torchwood Series 1 episodes of his that I re- re-watched and also 42, uh, which... All sort of came out at the same time is that he's got a he, he's got a pretty interesting range of styles. Um mm. day one, Cyberwoman, Countryside, End of Days, 42, they're all almost entirely different genres of, of storytelling. Mm. I mean, mm. Countryside in particular, that is basically the Texas Chainsaw, Blair Witch Wicker people. Um <laughs> and, yeah. and 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 there is it's nothing. Good. It's 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 good but it is it's it's like bringing it's 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 like a horror a, an earthbound horror movie just sort of intruding in the Doctor Who universe. It gives me a lot of faith that he is not going to be a one trick pony in uh, as a showrunner that he's got a lot of interest in a lot of different styles but some of those styles I didn't nec- weren't necessarily great fits I thought for the Doctor Who universe.
3: Okay. But I I do think, Chip, that part of Torchwood is that it is earthbound and that it has to address some of those things. And especially with the character of Gwen, who is supposed to be the bridge between like the supernatural alien and like real solid grounded earth experience. And I, you know, so I think that there has to be that to some degree. And I would point to in season two, the episode Adrift which is exactly that. It's just it's a missing person story, but it then it has this alien twist to it, but it really, you know, takes a hard look at, you know, what happens to the people left behind and what do they go through. And kind of really humanizes that in a way that I think that maybe isn't necessarily appropriate for Doctor Who, but for Torchwood it works and it's and it's right on target.
2: Mhm. Can I ask, can I ask something about Torchwood then? I mean, so famously, Terence Dix said when he was planning the, uh, they're in planning for the first John Pertwee seasons, he said the problem with basing Doctor Who on Earth was that you've only got two stories, alien invasion and mad scientist. Now I've never watched Torchwood. Is that a fair comment to make about the show or is it, or is there more to it than that? I'd say that there's more to it.
3: Yeah. Okay. I, I I definitely think there is. And, um, of course, like, my favorite episode is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and it will always be that episode because you cannot go wrong with James Marsters and John Barrowman. Like, the sparks. Oh, my God, the sparks. And but that was
1: the, that was the uh, second season The second uh, season premiere. To, yeah. And that was one of the things that um, I think Chibnall – Chibnall was the sort of the head writer, and he was a co-producer on Torchwood. Um, Russell T. Davis was still the showrunner, but Chibnall was – really really active in the show it was i i I think it was i think those first two seasons were as much chibnall as they were uh torchwood as as, as they were rtd um but that second season episode kiss kiss bang bang sort of resets torchwood um My friend Lynn Thomas from the Verity Podcast, and uh, she was uh, editor of the Chicks Dig Time Lords and uh, Chicks Unravel Time anthologies and things like that. She's fond of saying that early Torchwood is like camp noir. There's all kinds of really nasty stuff happening, but it's also really darkly funny and over the top. And as she can't help repeating, you know, the Torchwood characters are just so damn horrible at their jobs uh, um which which is which is kind that's of funny that's true
3: and, but, but they actually use that
1: they do very
3: effectively in especially in that second season it's like this running gag of all the people in cardiff they're like oh bloody torchwood here they are again mucking it up for us
1: yeah, so I, I think that, I think that uh, Chibnall's sense of humor um, and a certain irreverence towards uh, the stories that he's uh, saying, I think that also, that also bodes well, I think, for Doctor Who.
3: Yeah, and I think the other thing, especially in season two, which I find to be actually collectively just a really good season-long arc um, that, that he shows there, but the, the season two finale with fragments and exit wounds I think points to what Doctor Who does a lot is that you have a two-parter where the two are very loosely connected by a thread, but yet thematically it flows all the way through. And they're they're different, but at the same time, it's just so solid. And I, I don't think that I have ever been as emotionally devastated or affected as much as I have in anything in the, in the Doctor Who universe as I was by exit wounds. I think he, he brings, um, you know, the season back together with Captain John back again, but it's, but you you dig into the past of all these characters and it it brings it all together. And just the Tosh and Owen. Oh my God. Like he, you know, uh, you know, like Chip was saying, the funny is there, but it it can turn and really draw you in emotionally and just wreck you in a way that I think, you know, I hate to say it's good for you, but it's it's good for the show to have that kind of emotional depth to draw from. Um, so and and in genre, you know, I mean, you can say that all you want about Broadchurch, but that's a kind of a whole separate animal, right? Yeah. So he he's able to do it here in genre so effectively.
1: Now, when he was named the showrunner, the the one word that was on every skeptic's minds was
2: Cyberwoman. Yeah, I oh, know well, this is going to be interesting. Yep. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, how familiar are you with Cyberwoman?
2: That's one of the. That's one of. That's that's half of what. No, I think I I saw I watched two episodes and that was the other one. But it's such a long time ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. I,
3: yeah. So. I, I rewatched Cyberwoman, and I've got to say, like, I'm gonna go to bat for this episode because while it's h- horrific visually, it just makes no sense. I, I spent some quality time actually listening to the dialogue, almost like with my eyes closed, and I really think there's there's like three things happening here that kind of take it down. Number one, of course, the costume. It's it's just dreadful, and it takes away and kind of distracts you from what's going on there. Number two, I think that barbecue sauce thing at the end was just like the worst plot resolution strategy. It it just didn't work. Um, But then I really think the third thing is the direction. I'm going to blame the direction, probably slightly more than the writing here, because I think with a different director, not doing some of the offensive or unnecessary things, there. I I just think it could have been a much better episode.
1: Yeah, I as I was, I, I tried to do the same thing, and I tried to imagine. Well, if the costuming had been different, and if it had looked different, would people have accepted it more? If if she looked more like, um, you know, the the Borg or something like that, sort of a half-finished, uh, half-finished cyber person as opposed to sort of a a fetish object, um, would people have thought more kindly of the episode? And I, in the end, I thought up until, up until we get to the barbecue sauce and then the, and then, um, and, and then the cyber woman implanting her brain in the pizza delivery person's body for no apparent reason i just sort of thought it all fell apart writing wise in the last 10 to 15 minutes but for the most part yeah i i'm not going to say that cyberwoman is unjustly maligned but i don't think that it is as awful as the chibnall skeptics say it is it's not entirely his fault
2: are there such people as chibnall skeptics really
0: oh yeah Yeah, there's a lot of people that are very skeptical about how he will take Doctor Who. Um, And I think part of it is based off of, you know, he's had a couple of episodes that have fallen flat. um, And a bit of it is, uh, you know, just generally not knowing where he's going to take. The direction of the show especially since there's so many rumors about him bringing in like an american style writer's room and i half the people are enthusiastic about the idea and half the people are like this is not doctor who so
2: wait hang on a minute are we back to half half the people who express an opinion on a minority forum entirely peopled by doctor who fans are against it is it that kind of people against it? It's
0: not even that kind of it's not I've seen a lot of discussion happening on multiple platforms about uh, whether or not that new setup will be something that's good for the show. Um, and people who think you know, and people I generally respect who have really good insights into the show being a little bit skeptical about how is this going to work uh, when he takes over the show and is this going to, you know fundamentally change sort of the the, the nature of the beast um, when you bring in a new style to it. Um, and, you know, having watched a lot of his Doctor Who episodes and things, you know, I'm sort of, I'm going to be, you know, a little bit of a cop out and say I'm kind of exactly in the middle of, uh, you know, I think it could be really interesting. I think he's had uh, a couple of episodes that have really struggled with Doctor Who. Um, and, uh, I don't know how much to blame on him and how much to blame on other surrounding circumstances. I think it... Uh, American style writers' room could definitely help him, um, but I'm curious to see how it gets implemented if it actually does get implemented.
1: Uh, my friends uh, Eric Stadnick and uh, Kyle Anderson of the podcast Doctor Who, the Writers' Room, are really, really nervous about this because they think that one of the defining qualities of Doctor Who is it's very author oriented, it's very uh, it's very writer centered that you have a story by. Stephen Moffat, you have a story by Paul Cornell, you have a story by Sarah Dollard, and it's very much their episodes. And if you have a writer's room that it's all going to become, you're not going to have individual authorial voices, you know, a Terrence Dicks might not just sort of rise through or something like that. I'm in a sort of a wait and see mode on that myself.
0: Yeah. Well, Terrence Dicks also like rewrote half the episodes that he was involved on that didn't have his name attached to them. So-
2: Hmm. But that's what. The, but that's the, that. But that's the role of script editor, isn't it? And that's surely what a show, yep. what, what the modern showrunner does. You know, he takes the takes the output of whichever writer it is. And I do. Gr- and yes, you're absolutely right. It is that normally it's one right. It's one voice. But then the showrunner takes that and does what he wants to do with it, or what he believes needs to be done to it. Um, so you know, again, I, I don't, I'm not very. I'm not overly familiar with this. So it seems to me that all right, if there's a writers' room. Um, you know the infinite number of monkeys and I don't want to call them right call them that generates a script and the showrunner looks at it and goes, all right, and punches it into shape. Isn't that the way this works?
0: It depends very much on how the writer's room is set up and the personalities that are in the writer's room. Ah. So some writer's rooms really let for individual voices to shine through and the showrunner just sort of, you know, molds it into shape for the rest of the season. And some can be a lot more top down driven. So that's why I'm curious to see how he implements it, you know, what he wants to do with it, what sort of setup he wants to it. Because I think an individual voice can shine through in a writer's room Mm. and, Personally, my reaction to the last few seasons of Doctor Who is I'd like a stronger showrunner at the helm, bringing more of it together, Mm. Um, you know, and and to sort of focus on Chibnall's episodes again. You know, one of my big impressions with watching Chibnall's Doctor Who episodes is that especially very strongly during Series 7. You know, Moffat had said for the first half of Series 7 he wanted each episode to be sort of like a Mm -hmm. mini-movie. You know, there was that big uh, marketing campaign behind it that each episode has its own poster, like a movie trailer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they all sort of stand on their own individually, and that leads to problems. You know, I think one of the reasons dinosaurs on a spaceship um, is, you know, get so deridden is that the next immediate episode, A Town Called Mercy, has a completely different moral conclusion than dinosaurs on a spaceship. Um, So they both sort of get hated on because of that. And that's because, you know, you really don't have someone at the helm really saying, hey, these two episodes have the Doctor coming to completely opposite moral conclusions. Maybe we should work on editing these episodes a little more. Um, And Chibnold seems to be the only one finding a storyline all the way through the season. You know, he wrote the Pond Life mini-episodes that prequeled the season. Um, He had two episodes um, in the middle um, that sort of uh, brought us Rory's dad um, and showed us an evolving relationship um, with uh, Rory's family and Amy and Rory, how they're coming to a conclusion about their life with the Doctor versus, you know, their real life. And then he also wrote that um, not fully produced conclusion episode with you know, the letter to Brian, Amy and Rory explaining what happened to them. Um, and he seems to be the only one that pulls that family storyline together all the way through it. So that's one thing that makes me sort of interested in what he might do with Doctor Who. Because he seems to ha- want to have a firm hand on creating an actual story arc that comes together for the characters and brings them some sort of emotional conclusion.
2: This is interesting. Perhaps, okay, there, there was something in... Um... Uh, the Hungry Earth and Cold Blood that you guys can probably explain to me. But if I can, if I can just jump in for a minute, because now you're talking no. about Doctor Who. Um, yeah, okay. So I I watched 42, and I watched The Hungry Earth, and I watched The Cold Blood, and Dinosaurs in a Spaceship, and I think I saw All of Power of Three. I can't remember. Um, what I liked was that there were some really obvious things that, uh, uh, that seemed apparent for even from even before the filming starts. Strong female characters. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry if this is all very obvious, but I, I think it's worth saying... Um, The strong female characters, I mean, you know, from 42 to uh, Miss Chowdhury in Hungry Earth and Cold Blood, Nefertiti on dinosaurs in a spaceship, um, and then you've got Kate uh, Kate Stewart turning up in uh, The Power of Three. So this whole idea of strong, centrally important females beyond that of of the obvious person who's the the companion seems to be um, something which, well, with the casting of a female Doctor, seems to be right up there front and centre, which is pretty cool. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm liking the the, uh, prominence of a countdown In all of the episodes, in each one of them, in each one of them, there was, there was, you know, a nice sense of peril and some continuity and some, what's the word I'm looking for? Propulsion going on, because in each one there was a countdown, um, you know, 42, it's all right there, hungry, earth and cold blood. Well, okay, that's it. There's the, there's the drill, um. Dinosaurs on a spaceship while well, the thing's coming towards Earth, the missile's going to get fired, and then the power of three—it's all in the cube. So the, 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 that was it. And then, of course, the thing that you've that you were just talking about, which is um, his focus on the family, um, over and beyond over and above the way that Russell T Davis used to do it and the way that Stephen Moffat has famously done it. Um, Chris Chibnall seems to be able to write three-dimensional families that means that that really seem to mean something. Um, although, it, although I'll go back, I'll go, I'll backtrack a little bit. You know, there's that line from Bill um, in the, at the end of season 10 saying, you promise you won't get them killed, and then you've got that echoed through, a, through, through quite a few of the characters, actually. You know, so the, there was Brian, just, just don't get him killed, and so on, and so on, and so on. So it seems to be about strong women. It seems to be about countdowns. It seems to be about friends and family. Um, I really like that he's very, very familiar with how Doctor Who works narratively. I mean, one of the great things about 42 that I've forgotten it was like just it's straight into the story. Here is the TARDIS. It's behind the locked door. You can't get to it. Go, perfect, absolutely brilliant. You know, it's, it's you know some of the best Doctor Who. Just, I mean, you know, some of the some of the strangest Doctor Who takes a couple of episodes to get that to happen, but he does it inside the first twenty seconds because he knows how it works. I
1: had forgotten
2: um, how much I loved Forty Two. Some of yeah. it just doesn't make
1: sense if you take the time to think about it, but you're not given the time to think about it because it just moves so propulsively and. The other thing that I love about that episode in particular is that with a lot of characters on the ship that's falling into the sun, you don't have a whole lot of time for characterization. And yet each of those characters, uh, particularly Michelle Collins as the uh, captain, um are yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, they're 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 three they're fully three dimensional. he He's real economical in making you care about these people, I think.
3: Yeah, and I think it has one of the best uses of Martha in the whole season. Mm-hmm. As well, yes. yeah. I think she's especially strong in this episode and independent. And while she does have like a little mini love story in the episode, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not about the doctor. So that's great. Um, yeah. And so I think that he really shows... Like strength in developing all these characters, the new ones plus utilizing the ones that he has very well.
1: He also does one. He also does one thing that I cannot recall ever seeing before in the Doctor's character. If if it's been a while since you've seen Forty Two, uh, basically the Sun is alive and the Sun is possessing people on the ship, and finally the Sun uh, possesses the Doctor. And as they are trying to stick the doctor into a uh, device that'll cool his body down and try to keep the the sun creature at bay within him, you know, as they're trying to get him in the thing, the doctor says the, the doctor actually starts to panic a little bit and says, I am so scared. And yeah. I have never seen the I have never seen the doctor or never recalled seeing the doctor um, having that moment of fear before um, and I think that that's that is something new that uh, Chibnall brought to it that I haven't seen since I don't think.
2: So wait a minute then are we saying that this award-winning writer who's worked with Doctor Who and has been a, was a member of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society and is on record since 1986 of, um, in, in in talking about what he wants for the show is good at characters good at established characters, good at quick characters, understands the way the show works and is probably very, very, not is probably, and is consistently good with writing strong women, which is helpful because that's the lead character. What are we worried about?
0: What exactly are we worried about? I got to bring it up because this is where Mm. I get skeptical about Chibnall is that he is for the most part, really, really good, but he has sometimes got a very careless sense of humor. um, And this is, very much not a thing. I I don't know how to translate this over into like a UK references, but for me, it comes across as a very frat boy kind of humor uh, that comes out. And sometimes it comes out in kind of innocuous, harmless ways, like dinosaurs on a spaceship. There's the joke about the Triceratops, uh, you know, maybe is interested in the balls in Brian's pants. And like, that was just sort of an eye rolling moment that brought me out of the episode a bit because I was like, for the love of God, really? Um, The other thing that sort of concerns me is that Doctor Who's Series 7, and I don't know exactly who to pin this on because Chibnall clearly didn't have enough time to develop out these episodes as possibly should have been. But there's a sort of amount of carelessness that I see um, in those episodes. Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, a thing that kind of raised my eyebrow there is you have that whole shift in the episode from where um, he's going to be selling the dinosaurs to where now he wants to – kidnap and sell Nefertiti. And there's a kind of really uncomfortable implication there when you have someone, you know, there's human trafficking slash slavery thing happening with trying to kidnap a black woman and then sell her on the black market. And that was just really sort of uncomfortable to me. It's like, yeah, we want to we want to push boundaries in the show, and we want to talk about um, you know science fiction plots. But is that really the kind of thing that we want to be you know bringing up on a, a kids' TV show? Like that's a little bit. I uh, think I, I,
2: over the I, top. I think children are a lot more resilient than than you're suggesting here. And I think this is about how you're choosing to read that. That's an alien whose whole <laughs> whose whole raison d'être in the fiction of the show, and I think that's the important thing within the context of the fiction of the show. Um, is is to steal things regardless of who or what they are, and to sell them. Now, fair enough, there is an implication that leads back into American cultural history, or the world cultural history. But I, I don't know. I think that's more. I think that is something that you're projecting onto that. To be totally honest with you, that's Nefertiti. That's um, you know, if, if nothing else, that's that's a very strong uh, woman of color who makes it who makes it absolutely clear that she's not going to do anything she doesn't want to. So you know, you're on. right.
3: Yeah. I- <laughs> I'm kind of in the middle there with that where I was, it really, I remember it really upset me and and took me aback when it, you know, when it was first brought up, but to Tom's point, like she's making those choices herself. And so I felt better about it narratively. It wasn't great, but I felt a lot better about it narratively because he's writing her, making these choices herself. Do you know? I think I there might be some. Mostly-
2: there might be some space. I don't. I, I don't know if we can keep this in or not. But I think there might be some space for how how we read Doctor, how different people um, read Doctor Who, because I, I wonder if this is a cultural thing. Because this is the second or third time that this has come up, and it's and although, although I see it, it's never been anything that's really taken me out of the story. I mean, so things like thin, ice, uh, yeah, things like um, thin ice might have had a, a, a similar effect. But maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a chat we can have about that, you know, how do different cultures read Doctor Who? You know, how, what does it what does it mean to different people?
0: I think absolutely we can. And I think for me, it, the, not, not the point necessarily, I wasn't trying to say that like, kids can't handle that kind of story. But mostly just, is this a good way to be using Nefertiti's character? Like, They were, for the most part, fantastically using her character throughout the episode, just sort of bringing her out and in a totally different situation. And they have a great back and forth developing between Amy and Nefertiti, um, you know, these these two really incredible women talking through things, and Nefertiti being out of her element, but also asking good questions about how to move the plot forward. And it just sort of felt weird to me that they bring her into this show for her ultimate purpose in the plot to be, you know, a uh, a woman who this alien creature wants to kidnap and sell. So for me, it was more just a sort of, I raise this is, this is how you want to use Nefertiti in an episode? Like, I wanted the episode where the doctor saved Nefertiti's people in Egypt. You know, like, I thought that was a more interesting, better way to use the character. But that's my impression of it.
2: Well, I don't know. It seems to me that you've got Solomon um, shown to be the idiot that he is. I mean, yeah, fair enough. Ultimately, the, mm-hmm. do- ultimately the, doc- the doctor drops the hammer on him. But what you've got is you've got a very entitled old white man, if that's the way we want to read it, um, who makes a set of very stupid, very foolish assumptions about the queen, a queen of Egypt, who ultimately she did, and where ultimately she decides how she wants this to go. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is that's. I think what you've got there is a very interesting reading of it because it's something that hadn't really occurred to me. It, it, it seemed to me that Solomon was showing up to be the idiot there, and any and any uh, any um, uh, any I don't know any negative racial or gender reading that might be pushed onto the script. Was something that was very fleeting. I, I I just didn't see it at all. But never mind. You know, I'm learning.
0: It, it's a, everyone's allowed to have a different perspective on it. You know, it's definitely oh, I yes. I had not considered your perspective on it before either. <laughs> and um, here we the are. Other <laughs> thing, the other thing, the other thing that I think I gets me a little skeptical about Chimneyl and we talked about earlier with Torchwood is that his endings sometimes fall apart. In the last 10 minutes, you know, dinosaurs on a spaceship has that moment where the doctor just sort of abandons Solomon to get blown up by missiles, which seems sort of a very undoctorish moment. Um, The Power of Three, and this may have been because this should have been a two parter episode, and it was a lot of plot to squeeze into one part, has the doctor, Amy and Rory fleeing the spaceship as it's about to blow up and leaving like 15 people stranded on the spaceship to just sort of get blown up Um, and there's, you know, plot details that don't really make sense, like all of these people were dead, can come back to life the way that they did, sort of raised an eyebrow. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I think this might be the benefit of a, a writer's room, that there are more people bouncing back and forth these ideas of how to bring the plot to a more coherent uh ending um because i think chimmel does great with the emotional character arcs of people and sometimes like the ending just needs like one or two more rewrites to get it fully there
1: we yeah. i think we've uh, bypassed a little bit uh hungry earth and cold blood um, oh, good yes come on. and <laughs> and i uh, and i'm wondering i'm wondering how that one set with y'all because i remember at the time thinking that you know they're really really trying for not only bringing back a classic Pertwee villain but trying to basically do a Pertwee story
2: yeah because it's infer- it's it, it it is the Silurians yeah. and it is Inferno isn't it it's kind of it's it's just, well you know yes. there's, the, there's you know the the, well, the, the the device with the drill turns up in Inferno although you haven't got the alternative earth thing I thought it was good it was nice and quick nice and snappy um, it seems to be relative, you know, it, it seems that the characterization of the Doctor is nice and is, is is again nice and strong so so the writer understands how to write the character. again you've got um I forget I forget her first name um the scientist Shauddryy is fantastic mm-hmm. really really well played. Ambrose the mother great but this is what I mean so what you've got is this again ladies you're gonna, you're gonna have to help me out because you know I've, I've just been focusing on these stories but it seemed to me that the female perspective and the idea of, of um, women as protagonists and and as um, the driving force in the plot, is very very strong in *The Hungry Earth* and *Cold Blood* because it's it's all about the Silurian sisters, um, mm-hmm. it's all about Ambrose and how and how she deals with the threat to her family. And you know, in that respect, it's a bit like *Alien*. Um, There's one female course- character who
1: is not well served by uh, *The Hungry Earth* and *Cold Blood*, and I think that that's Amy Pond. Um, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't super thrilled <laughs> yeah. with how uh, how disengaged and uh, slumped over and um, you know. Her her role as the uh, negotiator on behalf of the human race, you know, she doesn't exactly, I, as I recall it, because this is one that I didn't have the chance to uh, watch in prep. Mm. It, it didn't strike me that she was a character that rose to the occasion.
2: I don't know. She did. She 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 had the, the role of being a, a, a quite a calming influence in the same way as Sarah Jane used to used to um, sort of appear from nowhere and just do just do. do um, Silence and great strength, or speak softly um, and, and and speak logic. In in the Tom Baker years, she seemed to be that voice of reason, which was saying, "Put the guns down. Let's not do this." And I think when these has gone, when the father was going crazy because his son was under glass, um, yeah. she was the influence, which is like, "Okay, listen, we have to slow down. We have to take a step here." And in fairness, it's you know it's two two Doctor Who episodes, and so someone had to get pushed back. And to be honest with you. Although Karen Gillen's a truly lovely person, um, I was never mad keen on on the character of Amy, who always seemed a little bit too entitled for me. Not quite as entitled as Clara, but huh, well, that's just me. Um, but yeah, okay, I, you know, if Amy takes a step back in that in that story, I can forgive I, I can forgive the writers that. Could you explain something to me though? Um, I, I need to understand because I, I I just haven't really thought about it in any great depth. But at the beginning. Amy and Rory come out of the TARDIS and they wave at each other on the hillside and then Rory's eaten up by the crack and then it's just Amy on the hillside. How does that all fit in with the angels in Manhattan and everything? I don't know. I don't understand.
0: Um, nothing fits in with angels in Manhattan
3: is basically, basically the answer to that question. Right.
2: Okay, good.
1: All right, fine. just
3: a nice way to, to wrap things up okay. without I mean, really connecting it to everything else.
1: Rachel, I in think you were – go- Rachel, I think Oops. you were going to say something about uh, Hungry Earth Cold Blood.
3: Um, well, given it's, that it was the only Chibnall episodes I did not rewatch, watch um, I, I don't have a ton of detail to say about it, but that my recollection was that I actually felt it was too little for a two-parter. Mm. That I might have condensed, it? I condensed <laughs> it into one episode. Yeah. Um, that that's that was my recollection. That I felt like it was stretched out too much.
2: Do you know, it's, it's, you know it, it seems to me like an old six-parter whereby you've got the first four episodes do tell a story and then something happens at the end of episode four and then you've got two, you, you get a further two episodes to resolve it. It felt like that on a rewatch, to be honest, which I think maybe underlines the Pertwee idea. Yeah,
3: and, and if the yeah. purpose was to kind of emulate a Pertwee episode and especially bringing in the drill kind of does that, there's mm. like the Salorians and the drill. There's a familiarity to it, right? So mm. if, if the purpose was to emulate that, then maybe that was the point, and it was successful in that way. But in the context of the modern series, to me, it didn't work because those are more single epi- episodic things, and even the multi-parters tend to be have a heavy divide between part one and part two that I felt like wasn't there as much how, this time. How
2: how many episodes were in the in the in the season ten? thing with, uh, with the ice warriors was it just was, uh, that, was, it, was that just one it was, was just two? one
0: it was just one because right do you know what because that's how you
2: do a six pass in through in the in the modern format because I, I was trying to remember i thought that was one episode but it felt like two i mean not in a bad way it yeah. just a lot happened
0: it's it's very interesting watching the uh writers who are really interested in like the pertwee and classic who stories and how they bring them in to a modern day format and try to, you know, what what would have taken, you know, five, six, seven, (laughs) 25 minute episodes and how they bring it into one snappy 45 minute episode because they both, you know, a a lot of them have very different ways that they try to do it. And I, I do sort of agree that I felt like uh, cold earth hungry uh, sorry hungry earth cold blood could have been brought down into one episode I think it definitely could have happened because mm-hmm. like the middle bits with the negotiation felt to me like you know the third or fourth episode in a Pertwee serial that I would maybe skip over <laughs> if I was just trying to finish the story before it was time to go to bed that night yeah. you know it definitely got bogged down a little bit and that's possibly my own personal bias I mm-hmm. I tend to not like diplomacy episodes um, when it's, you know, the story is more about human people and their flaws because that just makes me sort of like irrationally angry. I'm just like, for the love of God, somebody think through what you are saying before you say it. So that's just me though, of how I feel about those episodes. No, fair
2: point. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, well, you know, it, again, it, I think maybe, maybe what we can do is put it in context, you know, we've got, that's Matt Smith's first season. Uh, yeah. And so what, you know, my, my, long-standing not complaint observation is that it takes writers a long time or a couple of seasons to learn how to write the doctor but you've got but with those episodes number one you've got a really strong lead actor but number who's attacking the material but it seems to me that the material he's got there is entirely conducive for him to establish the character that he goes on to be that he goes on to be in fact I'd go as far as to say um it's it's almost like it's almost like um Matt Smith's visitation moment you know he's trying things out some things work some things don't there are some things I wish he'd kept for the rest of his characterisation, but essentially mm-hmm. the character is pretty much in there, and it's and, and the script, and you, you listen to it, you look at it, it's just, it, it's pretty generic Doctor material, but the mm-hmm. way he attacks it, the way he takes it on, it seems, seems to, it seems to suggest that, yeah, okay, number one, the writer can write a Doctor character, but better than that, this actor can act the Doctor really, really well and in, in a way that maybe Tennant didn't quite do quite so quickly in his first season. Mm. But, just, but again, just, that's just that's a personal observation.
1: Well, that sort of brings it back to me to uh, we were talking about the questions about the writer's room or not. And it may be, especially uh, for uh, the season when we're introducing for the first time in 53 years, a female character to as, as the Doctor. It may be a really, well, uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: um,
1: it may be a great thing that he is that Chibnall is considering a writer's room this time to try to get ahead of that first season new doctor, new um you know, who who is this character? Let's he may be trying to figure oh. he may be trying to figure it out and get some level of consistency in the character. Rather than having having the first season go and people looking and seeing, OK, well, this episode worked, this episode didn't and sort of o- organically the second season around figuring out how best to write Jodie Whitaker mm-hmm. and the new uh, yeah. the new status quo.
0: Yep. And I'm going to push us into shameless speculation here, um, because one of the things that makes me really interested, particularly about your point, Tom, about how he writes female characters, Mm. is that I do have a lot of optimism that Chibnall is going to really do well his first season, because he not only has a very good grasp of the Doctor's character Mm. throughout Doctor Who's history, Mm. he also has a very good grasp grasp of Jodie Whittaker as an actress and as the type of person that she can be um, in this role because he has written for her previously for three seasons of Broadchurch. Like He has a very good grasp of how she will tackle a character and he already has a very good grasp of how he is going to be writing The Doctor Um, because he has written The Doctor through uh, two different incarnations now Um, and he, uh, so I think he Going to be a really strong individual to bring the doctor into this next season of introducing us to a new doctor. Um, and I think that's really, really going to help as they're trying to establish a solid base um, for Jodie Whitaker. Because let's be honest, she's going to be scrutinized twice as much as any new doctor will be because she's also breaking a barrier here for a bit. So, and a lot of people unjustly are going to use this as the benchmark of can someone other than a white man play the role
2: of course of course it's an actor show me a a black actor show me a female actor an actor can play that role Um, but I I think you're absolutely right I mean there's a piece of um, footage on YouTube of J.D. Whittaker doing antigone it's only two minutes but oh yes and do you know she blasts it it's it's like oh good god just get on get on camera get the boots on get the trench coat on get in the blue box it's just oh it's it's just incandescent um
1: i'm
3: i have not seen that
2: she
1: is on stage with christopher eccleston and you forget that eccleston is there
2: Mate, it's it's yeah. all about her. It's all about her. It's powerful. It's focused. There's, it's it's a ca- so we're we're getting away from Chris Chibnall, but you know because I've got I've got I just got this thing. I I've just I've got this very strong belief that she's going to be amazing. And I, I watched that, I watched her the little clip of Antigone, and it was like uh, just just do a tenth of that on the, on the screen, and we and we've won. We've so won. <laughs>
3: yeah, this is true. Yeah, I you know I really firmly believe that the absolute baseline expectation here is going to be pretty solid because um, like you've been saying, we we have a really strong connection to the show that he has. He's written for it in the past. He knows how it works. Plus add extra years of experience from his broad church days. And you really, you know, can't think that it's going to be bad you can think you can have a wait and see attitude about it and i think that's valid but i just don't think that it, that you can assume that it's going to be bad in any way that um, that it's going to be solid to great because
2: this is the thing in what universe would anybody take something that was valuable important and that meant something to so many people and give it to someone who couldn't do it republicans maybe
0: <laughs> yeah, let's bring up that national trauma <laughs> Oh,
1: goodness um, know, <laughs> Another thing that makes me enthusiastic And optimistic, Rachel Is that this <laughs> is the guy Who in 1986 was on the BBC um, Complaining about all the awful things That John Nathan-Turner and the BBC Had done to Doctor Who And he remembers being that guy And now he is going to be the showrunner And he, he, and he has personal experience with the existence of um, the kinds of the the kinds of scrutiny that he's going to be under. I think he's going to be powerfully motivated not to screw this up.
0: So final thoughts, how sort of what's what's the thing you're most looking forward to with Chibnall? What's the thing that's got you uh, maybe skeptical or maybe not skeptical at all? Uh, And uh, how do you think this is going to go?
2: Personally, I think it's going to be it's going to be fab. Things I'm looking forward to. He he seems to have a love of the show, equal if not greater than my own, and better than that, he's an established maker of television. He's got some great actors, and he knows what he's doing. Things I'm skeptical about: um, people outside well no people maybe not giving it a chance although that said I think it's going to appear uh, guns blazing I love the idea that someone said oh well maybe if we called cl- a climate change a woman then more people would talk about that um, <laughs> but yeah I, th- I think we've got nothing to worry about as I say the BBC aren't aren't daft there are people in fandom who will complain no matter what you serve them but I think um, yeah, you know, the, the casting of uh, of a strong actor, um, and the passing of this to someone who knows what they're doing, is a stroke of genius. It's going to be great. It's going to be good.
3: Yeah, I, I I'm just looking forward to the variety of experiences I think we're going to have. I think I'm going to laugh a lot. I'm going to cry a lot. I'm going to fall in love. I'm going to have my heart broken, and I'm going to have just such a a good roller coaster ride through it all.
1: I agree. Um, his he, he's he's shown a lot of range. Not all of his episodes have worked, but he has shown su- shown such an incredible amount of range in the kinds of stories uh, that he can do within the Doctor Who universe. I'm also looking forward to the fact that we won't see Countryside part two in an episode of Torture, uh, in an episode of Doctor Who. It's just, uh, I know know that he is smart enough to know that uh, there are some genres that you don't do on the family telly. Um, But uh, he, I keep coming back to 42. It's one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who. And um, it encapsulates the doctor and the companion and the characters around the companion so well for a classic sort of base under siege type of story, you still get he, he plays within the formula of that kind of Doctor Who and yet he he, he surpasses it uh, in character development and uh, just pacing. I don't know that we could have predicted what kind of showrunner Stephen Moffat would have been based on the stories that he was assigned by Russell T. Davis. So, you know, we, we may be flailing a little bit, but the range uh, the, the range that Chris Chibnall has has been more than demonstrated. And, and he's a hell of a showrunner to boot. We're gonna win. We're gonna win.
0: I agree with all of that. I think, you know, I'm really excited to see solid emotional arcs in the show, um, that he has a really interesting focus on uh, family. Um, And I I personally find myself pretty excited by the idea of uh, an American style writer's room with it. I think if there's anything that has me uh, a little cautious is, you know, I just want to see a diversity of voices brought to that writer's room. Um, I want to see, you know, people coming in and bringing solid co complete episodes together sharp endings sharpen up a little bit of some of that uh, frat boy humor uh that i didn't well, like, like in Adams some did. of the early episodes <laughs> yeah it's not exactly my favorite style of humor i'll be honest okay uh but
3: uh, although you know i think yeah i would I think pay good bunny to see another oud on a loo i'm just saying <laughs> yeah man. I do, but
2: I, do, I, I i you know i take your point i mean i think i i, I do wonder if that's what torchwood was was was, was partly designed to to, uh, to satisfy, because I, I'm aware of people who would like Doctor Who to be um, darkness and all sorts of wonderful things, you know, very, very, you know, very much Batman. And there's the other end of it, which is, you know, the the, um, the Douglas Adams season 17 bit where it's kind of out of control. But I, t- I, t- I don't know, you know, it, it is what it is. It's a family show. And you know, the, the, there's layers to it.
0: I don't mind silly humor. I don't mind ridiculous humor. I just, you know, I want it, a, you know, a little bit sharper and a little bit less ball jokes, please. Okay, fair play.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 phone, I'll phone Chris now. Hey, I mean.
0: <laughs> yeah, you go do that, okay? <laughs> Call him up personally, right?
2: <laughs> you know, I did actually speak to him last week. Do you know what he said? Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what he said? How'd, what? how'd you get this number? <laughs> oh.
0: Oh, you're
1: ridiculous. Okay. Yes. We have a, uh, this sounds like a good transition moment. Don't you think? <laughs>
0: This week on The Incomparable Network.
1: Just in time for this Christmas twice upon a time. Erica and Steven watch The Tenth Planet with a special guest on Lazy Doctor Who.
0: On our flagship show, a giant panel drafts the members of The Incomparable's Television Hall of Fame. Spoiler, Erica
3: chose Doctor Who.
1: And Tim Goodman reports from the Television Critics Association Summer Press Tour, or as he calls it, the Death March with Cocktails, on the TV talk machine.
0: All this and more at TheIncomparable.com.
1: Rachel and Tom, thank you so much again for joining us on This Week in Time Travel.
2: A joy, a joy to be here.
0: <laughs> As always. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com, and you can find us on Twitter at dhar Who This Week. You can find Chip on Twitter at Numeral Two Minute Time Lord, and I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at whovianfeminism. Feminism. You can find Rachel on Twitter at rmiriam, and you can find Tom on Twitter at drtada, and we're on Facebook, too.
1: You can support This Week in Time Travel by subscribing, sharing, and even becoming a member of the Incomparable Network at theincomparable.com slash members. Thanks, y'all, so much for listening, and we will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel.
0: Bye-bye. See you